Well, it is different here. Some of you I can't see. I only sense your presence. But I think you're here. Um, it's a big room, but look around and you see that God is already beginning to fill it. How amazing God has been to us. I, too, want to thank everyone. For those that don't know, I'm Tim Shorey, one of the pastors here, and I want to thank everyone for the amazing efforts of these past uh, couple of weeks to get us into this building. It has just been an extraordinary experience as a pastor uh, to watch the body of Christ function in a way that has allowed me as a pastor to continue to serve in the pastoral ways that have been needed in these last couple of weeks, knowing how well and how cheerfully things would get done. Uh, thank you all. I, I thank God for you just about every day uh, and in these past few days have been pouring out my gratitude uh, to the Lord. And, uh, and so I'm thanking God for you and I'm thanking God for His Word Psalm 82. We are in a series in the Psalms and have come to Psalm 82. And because of its relevance for our times and for all time, uh, we find ourselves here for a second week. We got started last week and realized that this Psalm, which is a song of justice, an ancient song that the people of God sang when they got together to worship God, uh, we realize that this song really is relevant for us. This is, this is a psalm that is addressed, first of all, to uh, rulers and governors, those that are in government positions, calling on them to care for the poor, to make sure that they took responsibility for those who were needy and as we have heard this psalm already read this afternoon, we, we hear, don't we, the, the language of justice, the language of rights and right. It, uh, in verse 2, the rulers are asked, how long will you judge unjustly? How long will you show partiality? Give justice to the weak. Maintain the right of the afflicted, rescue the weak, deliver them. These, these are words that, I don't know about you, but they grab hold of my conscience a bit. They, 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 they affect me, they affect me in a way that when we talk about the needy, when we talk about the poor and, and how we are to respond to them, we are to think in terms of justice. We are to think in terms of rightness. And, and the song here, the psalm, is really just echoing the prophets. You, you know the words of the prophets, do you not? Hear, hear the word of the Lord from Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What does He require of me but to do justice? to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Hear the words of the prophet Isaiah, learn to do good, seek justice, 
correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Listen to the words of the Lord in Isaiah again. Woe to those who turn aside the needy from justice. And again, the prophet, give counsel, grant justice, shelter the outcasts, and let them sojourn among you. The words of Ezekiel the prophet, if a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice and executes true justice, he is righteous and shall surely live. And then the words of Amos, that great thundering prophet of the Old Testament, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gates. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And the people of God should say, Amen. Amen. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is the word of the Lord. And it's that theme of justice, justice for the poor, justice for the needy, that Psalm 82 takes up and turns into a song that is meant to be sung. And it hit me just an hour or two ago as I was reflecting even further on this text, that in 58 years of life, I have never felt compelled to sing a song calling for justice. But many of you have. And in that moment, I realized the place of advantage, the place of privilege, the the place of wealth and prosperity and freedom that I have enjoyed that many others have not. Many in this room have often sung songs calling for justice. I'm affected by the fact that perhaps many of us in this room have not. This psalm tells us to. This psalm tells us that these things ought to matter to us. We are are talking about justice. We, We are not talking about benevolence. We're not talking about generosity. We're talking about justice. We're not talking here about a patronizing giving to the poor. We are talking about making sure that the poor get what is their due. We are not talking about providing for the poor some handouts as if others are at our mercy. We are talking about meeting needs as a response to a God-given claim upon our lives. We are called to uphold their rights. Now, in order to understand this, let me, let me try to answer four questions this afternoon. Who are the poor? 
What are the rights of the poor? What are we to do in response to the poor? And then what happens if we don't? So who are the poor? Who are those in real need? Somebody asked me this question following my message last week. Very good question. Very important question. We need to realize that the world might well be defining poverty differently than the Bible does. We need to understand that the world and our culture may have a definition of it that is not really consistently biblical. If you ask people what they need, you're going to get all kinds of answers that don't qualify as biblical needs. I, I, I ran across one definition of need this week. What is a need? Here is the, the answer that one organization gave. A need is a motivating force that compels action for its satisfaction. So it's a, it's a motivating force that compels action in order to be satisfied. In order, so there's some internal motivating drive that, that wants to be satisfied. And so this particular group says that's a need. Well, my friend, by that definition, ice cream is a need. By that definition, a sleeve of Oreos is a need. I hear amens for that. It, it, it is, by that definition, a, a motivating force that compels action. How many of you have been compelled to action by ice cream before? All right, see, not a need. This definition opens the door to calling anything and everything a need. No, what does the Bible say? is a need, or differently asked, who are the poor? Look at the text in front of us, and just follow this quickly. You'll want your Bibles open. The, the poor are, are described in a number of ways. First of all, they are described as the weak in verses 3 and 4. Give justice to the weak. And that, that word weak means thin, those that are not strong. They're either physically and and circumstantially and emotionally weak, so much so that they cannot work, or because they are poor, they have been made weak. Verse 3 mentions the fatherless, which in that culture referred to those without a father's presence, training, and nurture, but also in that culture implied they were without a source of income because the fathers were the source of income. Another category normally attached to fatherless is that of widow, which I think can legitimately include not only those who are bereaved of a husband, but also women who are abused and mistreated and or abandoned by a husband. And then in verse 4, the psalmist refers to the needy. And when you study that word in the Old Testament, it almost always is connected to hunger and nakedness and homelessness. And then verse 3 speaks of the afflicted. That's, that word means those who are depressed in their circumstances and in their mind, re, uh, referring to a, a state of material need that, that leads to great discouragement and a weariness of heart. Verse 3 also talks about the destitute, a word that speaks of deep want and deep lack, even of the basics of life. 
There are other texts that talk about the oppressed, and it's talking about those who are pushed down and pressed down by others. There's, there are passages that talk about those who are sojourners. They are, they are immigrants, if you will. They are aliens in a, in a country. They are refugees. They are wanderers and homeless and rootless. All of these words help us to understand who the poor are according to Scripture. According to Scripture, the poor are those who have inadequate resources to meet the basic needs of life. They have inadequate resources to meet the most basic needs of life. They don't have the family nurture. They don't have the financial means. They don't have sufficient mobility or access to acquire the basic needs of life, to acquire food, water, clothing, shelter, basic health care, legal protection, perhaps education and training so that, they can, so that they can meet those needs in an ongoing kind of way. They, they don't have the resources to meet the basic needs of life. That's the definition of poverty that the Bible gives to us. So who are the poor? They are, they are those that don't have the basic needs of life and don't have the resources to get them. So what are the rights of the poor? And we're going to have to hurry through these. We started them last week, didn't we? And there are 10 of them that we're going to run through. We did three of them last week, and, and there is, uh, the message is recorded. It is up on the website. You can go to it and listen to it. I encourage you to do that. The poor have, we said last week, we started with three rights. The poor have a right to governmental protection and provision. That's the point of Psalm 82 and a number of other texts in the Scripture. Secondly, we saw that the poor have a right to respect. As those who are made in the image of God, those who, for whom Christ has died, those, if they are believers, who are destined for glory, who are heirs of heaven, they have a right to respect. And now, and third, the poor have a right, we saw last time, not to be blamed. And we examined the various complex causes of poverty in order to make sure that we don't fall into the sinful, judgmental spirit that blames the poor for their poverty. I encourage you to go back and re-listen and, and open up your Bibles and search the Scriptures to see if these things are so, as it says of the Bereans. So with that review in mind, let's, let's see if we can do this. There are several more rights that we can include in what I'm calling a bill of rights for the poor. Right number four, the poor have the right to a fair share. The poor have a right to a fair share. The Bible teaches, I believe, that individuals and churches and communities and nations need to provide for the poor because the poor have a right to it. They have a right to a fair share of the wealth that God has placed upon the earth. It is only fair that we give to those in need so that no one will be in need, especially if we have more than what we need. 
It is only fair. And this is taught in Scripture. It goes way back to the Old Testament time, and again you see it, but you'll remember perhaps what we read about in the early church in Acts 4 where it says there was not a needy person among them. There was not one needy person among them. Oh, I hope that as we continue to live as a church, we will be able to say that. That there is not a needy person among us. Now, how did that happen in the early church? It happened, it says, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There were some with extra, there were some with not enough. Those with extra gave to those with not enough. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians that that is a matter of fairness. It's a matter of justice. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. If I have plenty and my neighbor does not have enough, Paul says it's a matter of fairness that it be shared. The poor have a right to a fair share. This is expressed beautifully in the Old Testament. I don't know how many of you are aware of the Old Testament law about gleanings in the field where those that had land and worked the land and had a crop, they harvested the crop, but they were not allowed to take everything from the field. They were to leave gleanings so that the poor could come and they could gather for themselves so that those that had none could have some. What a beautiful expression. What a beautiful manifestation of justice, of fairness. God says to the people of Israel, it is the gleanings are for the immigrant. They are for the widow. They are for the poor. It's a matter of fairness. It's a matter of justice. Number six, or number five, the poor have a right to fair and equal treatment under the law. The poor have a right to fair and equal treatment under the law. I'm realizing as I have worked through these truths in the last few weeks that each one of these could be a sermon all on its own. That each one of these is important. I have very rarely been on the unjust side of the law. I remember one time when I was. I remember back in the late 1980s, I was involved in Operation Rescue, which was this pro-life means of peacefully shutting down abortion clinics so that they couldn't kill babies that morning. Um, 
But the problem was that uh, we got arrested in the process. And this one particular morning, there were about 200 rescuers there, and I was sitting among them, and the abortion clinic agreed that it would shut down for the day if some people would be willing to be arrested. So I volunteered, along with three other men. So we got cuffed, we got taken off to the uh, police station, Uh, we got printed, we got charged, we got our court date. A few weeks later I went to court and when I got there, there were only two of the four men that had been arrested that showed up and the two that didn't show up were Roman Catholic priests. Uh, which I know got let off the hook for this because this was in Irvington, New Jersey, which was very heavily Roman Catholic, and they weren't going to have two priests on trial. So somehow they got off, but this other guy and me, we're still there. We get tried, we get found guilty, we get sentencing date. I go back a few weeks later to get sentenced, and the other guy doesn't show up. I get sentenced, they, they give me a, a, a pretty decent-sized fine, uh, and, and I called this guy up afterwards, and I said, hey, man, where were you? And he said, oh, I forgot. I'm not sure how you forget that. I forgot. They said, well, you better let them know, and uh, they got a warrant out for your arrest. So he, he shows up in court two days later in front of a different judge, and he got absolutely no punishment at all. So we got 200 rescuers, four people arrested, two people who had ties to the community let off, two people found guilty, one person gets penalized, the other one walks free. And it was my little glimpse, an ever so slight glimpse, into a system that is broken, into a system that can so easily be unjust. In this particular case, I was minority religion. And it ended up in my conviction and others not being convicted. I don't need to tell you where this is going, what the implications of this. We live in a culture where there are laws and there are statutes and there there have been for hundreds of years that unjustly and unfairly impinge on the poor, on the minority, on the destitute. And the scriptures say this is unjust. It is wrong. Woe to those, the scriptures say, who decree iniquitous decrees. Woe to those writers who keep writing oppression. You know, we could go on on this for a long time here, but we live in a culture where this has been the case, as I say, for hundreds of years, and it continues to this very day. It is unjust. It is wrong. It is a right of the poor to not have, or to have fair and equal treatment under the law. Right number six. Oh, I wish there were more time. The poor have a right to money-blind justice. To money-blind justice. Many times in the Scriptures, 
we are told that there are not to be bribes, there's not to be the exchange of money in the judicial system, and yet look at our judicial system and money runs the whole thing. Money runs the whole thing. It is unjust. Money plays a part in what policies are set. Money plays a part in who gets a good defense and who doesn't. Money plays a part in who gets arrested and who doesn't. Money plays a part who gets off with a misdemeanor, who gets a felony. Money plays a part in who and what crimes are part prosecuted. Money plays a part everywhere. According to the living God who is just and holy, this is unjust and this is wrong. Number seven, the poor have a right to impartial and unprejudiced treatment. Impartial and unprejudiced treatment. You'll want to read James 2 verses 1 through 7 where James says, My brothers, show no partiality toward the rich. Hold all equal. Number eight, the poor have a right not to be exploited. The scriptures are clear on this. They are not to be exploited. They are not to be taken advantage of. They are not to be charged interest on loans they need just to survive. They are not to, to, to get inadequate wages. These, these are biblical categories. These are biblical calls to judgment. They are not to be exploited. Number nine, the poor have a right to an occasional jubilee. A jubilee in the Old Testament was a year, every 50 years, where all debts were canceled. Where, where all enslavement was ended. It was like this, this fresh start for everybody. It's like the Scriptures are saying, everyone has a right to a fresh start. Everyone has a right to a do-over. Now, this, is, this isn't permission for people to knowingly, deliberately, intentionally get themselves into debt at somebody else's expense. We're not talking about that. We're talking about real need, real debt coming out of real need. The Scriptures say, Jesus says, do good and lend expecting nothing in return. That's like practice jubilee as a lifestyle. Make sure jubilee happens. And right number 10, the poor have a right to sit at your table and mine. The poor have a right to sit at your table and mine. The poor have the right to our hospitality. Isaiah 56 or 58, it's, is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise into darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. Wow, if that isn't motivation, 
This is God saying, if you pour out yourself for the hungry and for the needy, your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom, your darkness, your sadness will be dispelled as if it's noonday. Here is the promise of God for those who have the heart of God. God has this kind of heart. God is this kind of Creator, this kind of Father. God is constantly attending to the needs of His creatures. And God is saying, be like me. Be like me. And if you are like me, your light will rise. Your gloom will be dispelled. Make sure there's room at your table for the poor. Remember Jesus' words in Luke 14? Jesus also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. These are words, my friends, that stir me. They convict me. Jesus is not saying, don't ever have your friends in your home for dinner. But Jesus is saying, make sure you have those in your home who can't repay. Make sure there's a place at your table for the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind, those who are not going to be able to invite you back, those who are not going to be able to repay you, knowing that the day is going to come, resurrection day, that day, when Jesus will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. These are the rights of the poor. So who are the poor? Those that don't have the basic needs of their lives. What are the rights of the poor? We've just given you ten of them as are unpacked in Scripture. Now, what are we to do for the poor? Well, we've already said a lot of it, but you know, what I mean by this question is, is well, how exactly do we respond? I don't know about you, although I'm pretty sure about you. Uh, I do know about me that this kind of teaching raises lots of questions. Which poor am I supposed to respond to? What, how much and when and why and how and, and how many? And, you know, you know, all those questions, they're, they're racing through your mind. And, and, um, and, and we all know we live in a culture, we live in a time where through technology, it feels as if every need on the planet uh, gets seen in our living room. You know, we know about need everywhere, and it can be overwhelming, and it can be, it can be such it can almost paralyze us because where do we start, and, and how, do we, how do we respond? Can, it, can I just suggest to you um, just very, very quickly five quick suggestions? Is this just to get you started. Suggestion number one, aim for Simplicity. Aim for simplicity. What I mean there is aim for a simple way of life in your own life so that you can create gleanings. 
Aim for simplicity. Aim to to downsize your life. Aim to live in such a way that, you know, the the American way is in the constant pursuit of more. I, I think, I don't want to overstate it, but it might be close to accurate to say a Christian way is sort of like a constant pursuit of less, or at least of the simple, of of as little as I need so I can have as much as possible to give. Aim for simplicity to determine your ability as as an individual, as a family, determine your ability. What is it we can give? Now that we've met the needs of our home and lives, what are we able to give? And then number three, identify your responsibility Who are the people in your life that you know you're responsible for? Your family, your church in its mission and in its ministry, your neighbors who are in close proximity, whose paths you cross. Identify your responsibility, having Determine your ability, identify your responsibility, and focus there. And then pray, number four, pray beyond your capacity. Pray beyond your capacity. In other words, you have your areas of responsibility. Give and labor and pour yourself out for there. But you can't give to everybody, you can't give to every need, but you can pray for the needs you can't do, you can't meet. Galene was pointing out to me earlier today in Jared Mellinger's book. What's the name of it now? What is it? Think Again. If you haven't uh, picked it up yet, Jared, senior pastor of our Sending Church Covenant Fellowship, uh, in his book he talks about guilt and introspection and a very helpful uh, section in there where he, he distinguishes between areas of responsibility and areas of concern. And, and we all have areas of responsibility where we are obligated before God to do something about that. But then there are areas of concern that we don't have responsibility or means and resources for, but they can still be our concern. So when you see the news report on the poor or whatever, and you say, well, we can't meet all those needs. Well, you can pray for them. You can be concerned about them. You can care about them. Take care of your responsibility. Pray beyond your capacity. Pray for those needs that you yourself can't meet. And then, number five, expect God's generosity. Expect God's generosity because God has promised, 2 Corinthians, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And that's talking about generosity. It's saying the more you give, the more God is going to give you so that you can give more. Expect God's generosity. Give daringly. Live daringly. Pour yourself out for others, knowing that God's going to pour into you all that you need to pour yourself out again. This is, this is the life of faith. This, this, we can do this, folks, because we know God is our Father. 
Because we know God sees our need and God meets our needs. We know that he's got his eye on us every second of every day, in every need, in every desire, in every want, in every lacking, in every crisis, in every affliction. His eye is on us. His provision is already on the way. He knows our need even before we ask. We can do this in faith. We can do this in boldness. As we think together as Risen Hope Church, we try to think, Lord, what do you want us to do in Drexel Hill and beyond? What is it to which you are calling us? Who are the ones that we are to reach? Lord, give us courage to see them and embrace them and go after them knowing that you're going to provide for us. Lord, make us this kind of church that, that aims for simplicity, that determines our ability, that identifies our responsibility, that prays beyond our capacity, and then expects God's generosity. And then let's watch God do what only God can do. This is all wrapped up in Psalm 82. You know, when the psalmist says, maintain the right of the afflicted, this is what he's talking about. Live this kind of life. What happens if we don't? Well, the end of the psalm ends in a sober tone, a sober note. Verse 5, they, referring to rulers who do not care about the needy, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness all the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God's son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. What happens if rulers and nations and individuals and families and churches and communities do not respond to the needy. The implication of this psalm is that judgment day happens. The implication of the psalm is that we will one day stand before God and He will judge the nations and He will judge the churches and He will judge the individuals and the families who failed to do what they ought to have done in terms of justice for the poor. You know the text, right, in Matthew 25 where Jesus is judging the nations. Just listen to this as I read it and then bring the message to a close. Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. 
And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will say to them saying, truly I say it to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you will not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous, the just, into eternal life. What's Jesus saying? Is he saying that we earn our salvation based on whether or not we are kind to the poor? No, no. He's saying we prove the reality of our salvation by whether or not we do justice to the poor. James says, you, you say that you have faith. Show me your faith by your works. Kindness to the poor, justice for the needy is that which is the test and proof of our profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And on that day, if in fact we have failed to do justly, then God will expose that. And if we have not shown mercy, then God will will not show mercy. It's serious. Apparently God means it. It matters to God. So, how do we leave a message like this? Well, I hope we leave it, first of all, remembering that he who was rich for our sakes, became poor. Remembering that Jesus died for our sins. There are some topics that, I don't know about you, but as soon as I get into them, I feel guilt all over the place. Just guilt, just guilt, just guilt. Condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. And then I, then I have to remind myself of the gospel. I've got to preach the gospel to my own heart. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus died for all my sins, including my stinginess. Including my un- injustice. Including my indifference to the poor, to the minority, to the person who is afflicted. Jesus died for all of it. And all of yours, if you are trusting in Christ, live in the confidence of the gospel. Don't go out of here thinking, man, I better get this right if I'm going to get to heaven. No, realize Jesus got it right. You're going to heaven. You're going to heaven. But as a man, as a woman, as a young person who's going to heaven, do everything you can to take others with you. This is, this is the glory of young people, if you're here, teenagers here. You want something to live for? You want to you break loose from the blue screen and the games and the, 
the stuff. You, you want to wake up in the morning and have a reason to be alive. Here, here it is. Here it is. Trust Jesus for your salvation. Give Jesus to others and then do justice for this world. Live a life that is other-focused. Live a life for others, and you'll realize, wow, life matters. It's full of meaning. It's full of significance. Don't sit still in your room. Get out of your closet. By the grace of God, do something. Do something. Be committed to neighbor love and neighbor justice. Be committed to sharing Christ and caring for people. And watch what God does in your life and through your life. And you adults who just heard me say that to the young people, I hope you were eavesdropping. Because it's for you too. And now may God give us grace so to live. What a what an open doors in front of us. What a moment of opportunity. What a privilege. We are called. We are called as a church. Remember our mission? Worshiping God and welcoming all with gospel truth and neighbor love. That's what this is about. Worshiping God, welcoming all with gospel truth. Jesus died for our sins and rose again and neighbor love, which in part means do justice to those that are in need. Lord, would you please grant that we will so live. Lord, this is, this is a day that is marking a, a new stage and phase in our life as a church. Uh, we've expressed gratitude to you, and, and we've expressed gratitude for these men and women who have been so willing and so cheerful and so diligent and hardworking. Uh, we've expressed gratitude, but now we want to we ask you to put within our hearts as individuals and as families and as a church a sense of mission that will, that will hold us, that will control us, that will inspire us, that will envision us, that will press us forward and onward. Lord, help us to be a people who are on mission, bearing witness of Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and coming again, only Savior of sinners, bearing witness of Christ and doing justice to those that are in need. Oh, Father, mark us in this way. Fill us with such grace. And as we go, we will go confident that you're going with us. So will you please watch over your people, Lord? Please care for your dear children. Guard us from temptation. And in our times of trial, in our times of heartache, give us grace to endure. And then give us open doors into our community to love our neighbor and to do justice for your glory and for your honor and for your praise, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.